0: This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network.
1: I'm Connor Reed, with words to that effect. Stories of the fiction that shapes popular culture. The moon was full and broad in the dark blue starless sky and the broken ground of the heath looked wild enough in the mysterious light to be hundreds of miles away from the great city that lay beneath it. The idea of descending any sooner than I could help it into the heat and gloom of London pelled me. The prospect of going to bed in my airless chambers and the prospect of gradual suffocation seemed in my present restless frame of mind and body to be one and the same thing. I determined to stroll home in the purer air by the most roundabout way I could take, to follow the white winding paths across the lonely heath and to approach London through its most open suburb. I was strolling along the lonely high road, idly wondering, I remember, what the Cumberland young ladies would look like, when in one moment every drop of blood in my body was brought to a stop by the touch of a hand laid lightly and suddenly on my shoulder from behind me. I turned on the instant with my fingers tightening around the handle of my stick. There, in the middle of the broad, bright high road, there as if it had that moment sprung out of the earth or dropped from the heaven, stood the figure of a solitary woman dressed from head to foot in white garments her face bent in grave inquiry and mine her hand pointing to the dark cloud over London as I faced her I was far too seriously startled by the suddenness with which this extraordinary apparition stood before me in the dead of night in that lonely place to ask what she wanted the strange woman spoke first Is that the road to London? she said I looked attentively at her as she put that singular question to me. It was then nearly one o'clock. All I could discern distinctly by the moonlight was a colourless, youthful face, meagre and sharp to look at about the cheeks and chin. Large, grave, wistfully attentive eyes, nervous, uncertain lips and light hair of a pale, brownish-yellow hue. There was nothing wild, nothing immodest in her manner. It was quiet and self-controlled, a little melancholy and a little touched by suspicion, "'not exactly the manner of a lady "'and at the same time "'not the manner of a woman "'in the humblest rank of life. "'What sort of a woman she was "'and how she came to be out alone "'in the high road "'an hour after midnight "'I altogether failed to guess. "'The one thing of which I felt certain "'was that the grossest of mankind "'could not have misconstrued "'her motive in speaking, "'even at that suspiciously late hour "'and in that suspiciously lonely place. "'Did you hear me?' "'she said, still quietly and rapidly,' and without the least fretfulness or impatience. I asked if that was the way to London. This is a very slightly shortened version of the crucial early scene in Wilkie Collins' The Woman in White, when Walter Hartwright encounters the mysterious woman of the title, setting in train the events of the novel. The novel is one of the most famous examples of sensation fiction, a hugely popular genre at its height in the 1860s. Sensation fiction was so-called for a number of reasons. Firstly, these stories in serialised and then in book form were a publishing and pop culture sensation. Secondly, they contained sensational, outrageous, scandalous plotlines and characters, which made them so appealing to a large reading public. Murder and mystery, bigamy and fraud, shockingly independent women and conniving villainous aristocrats. And finally, they were sensational because of their powerful effect on the senses. The short passage I just read illustrates this particularly well. You have a mysterious encounter with a ghostly woman who seems as if she's appeared out of nowhere. Walter is terrified at first, especially as he unexpectedly feels this hand on his back. There's a clear gothic influence to it all. The extract opens late at night on an abandoned road, with Walter thinking about his gradual suffocation. This strange woman in white seems at first to be supernatural. But there are other senses being affected here too. Horror turns to curiosity at the mystery of this deeply unusual encounter. Who is this woman? Why is she on her own, late at night, dressed in this way? And Walter's other senses are excited too. He's daydreaming about two lovely young ladies he's soon to meet. And then a young, attractive woman places her hand on his shoulder and he turns around, struck by her appearance. He initially helps her on her way to London, but his obsession with her will drive the plot of the entire story. Soon after, with the woman now safely on her way to London, Walter continues walking along and soon sees a policeman across the road. A carriage with two men inside pulls up to question the officer. "'Policeman,' cried the first speaker, "'have you seen a woman pass this way?' What sort of woman, sir? A woman in a lavender-coloured gown. No, no, interposed the second man. The clothes we gave her were found on her bed. She must have gone away in the clothes she wore when she came to us. In white, policeman. A woman in white. I haven't seen her, sir. If you or any of your men meet with a woman, stop her and send her in careful keeping to that address. I'll pay all expenses and a fair reward into the bargain. The policeman looked at the card that was handed down to him. Why are we to stop her, sir? What's she done? Done. She's escaped from my asylum. Don't forget a woman in white. Drive on. And so the story begins. This short extract alone has touched on so many of the themes and features of the genre that I'm going to look at in this episode. That mixture of horror and intrigue, attraction and repulsion, their play on the senses in every way, the importance of a good mystery and the beginning of Walter's subsequent detective-like pursuit of answers, and the many contemporary questions around the place of women inside and outside the home. Walter's encounter is so strange because this woman is not where she should be. She's not acting the way she should. And his subsequent encounter with the carriage forces him to question whether he has helped a dangerous lunatic remain at large or aided in the escape of a woman falsely imprisoned. It's a novel that is sensational for so many reasons. One which has remained in print since it first appeared as a gripping serial in 1859. And a story which is a fantastic example of a genre which would go on to influence so much later popular fiction – right up to the present day.
0: So the term sensation novel was coined at the very beginning of the 1860s by critics who began to discern a new trend in fiction. There were other synonyms. Sometimes these novels were called crime novels or bigamy novels, um, newspaper novels, even fast novels. And they were used to describe novels by very popular novelists like Wilkie Collins, Um, So Wilkie Collins' The Woman in White, Mary Elizabeth Braddon's Lady Audley's Secret. So they were novels that centred on mystery, suspense and criminal intrigue, usually in a contemporary middle or upper middle class setting. And often their their plots would involve crimes such as murder, bigamy or fraud. And madness was also a favoured theme. And Punch magazine published a mock advertisement in the early 1860s promoting sensation fiction, where they claimed that it was devoted to harrowing the mind, making the flesh creep and giving shocks to the nervous system.
1: To help me understand the phenomenon of sensation fiction, I've enlisted the expertise of Dr Anne-Marie Beller.
0: So I'm Dr Anne-Marie Bella. I'm a senior lecturer in English literature at Loughborough University and I work on Victorian literature but um, primarily the sensation novel. I've published extensively on Mary Elizabeth Braddon and I'm currently working on Wilkie Collins. Collins
1: and Mary Elizabeth Braddon were by no means the only authors of sensation fiction. If you're interested in the genre you'll find numerous others. Ellen Woods, Rhoda Broughton, Florence Marriott, Charles Reed, and many others. But Collins' The Woman in White and Braddon's Lady Audley's Secret, which is somewhat less well-known today but at the time was a, well, sensation, are two of the absolute classics. Sensation novels were hugely commercially successful in the 1860s and into the 1870s and the reading public could not get enough of them. The critics, in many cases, were not always as enthusiastic. One of the reasons sensation fiction was so critically maligned was because, although they were aimed at a middle-class readership, the stories were very similar to those found in the Penny Press. The cheap, disposable, lower-class periodicals that sensationalised crime and drew heavily on the most salacious and gruesome newspaper stories. Sensation novelists, too, kept a careful eye on the crimes of the day.
0: I think this term newspaper novel is, is quite useful because it, it really emphasises the way that these were very contemporaneous, up-to-date plots that were often negotiating, you know, very topical concerns. Quite often issues around women's legal position and social roles were pivotal. We see that as well, of course, in, you know, canonical novels by Bronte, Dickens, Eliot. But these were much more sensationalised. The heroines were often far more transgressive. And in many ways they can be read as critiques of, of the middle and upper middle class home, of, of marriage as an institution.
1: Now we tend to think of these stories as novels. If you go and buy The Woman in White for example it's most likely going to be a paperback with maybe a nice academic introduction and a contents page and so on. But while stories like this were bound together and sold as novels this was only after they'd gone out as serials in the hugely popular periodicals of the time. Literacy was on the rise, there were economies of scale and improvements in paper production, the paper tax was eliminated in 1861, the demand for serialised fiction had been long proven by Dickens and many others. Add this to the absolute page-turners full of crime and scandal and mystery and it's no surprise that everybody was reading sensation fiction,
0: for good or for ill. This was one of the the primary concerns about the sensation novel. It cut across class boundaries, and this was a real source of anxiety that servants were reading the same stories as their masters. This also fed into anxieties that the sensationalised reading material of the lower classes, so Penny Bloods, Penny Dreadfuls, were filtering up into more respectable middle-class fiction. And for more on Penny Bloods, have a listen to episode 36 on Varney the Vampire and just this kind of issue of the blurring of class boundaries which again to put that into context can be read against debates in the in the decade running up to the passing of the secondary reform act in 1867 so class is a very topical concern lots of more conservatively minded commentators are extremely worried about that kind of blurring of class boundaries. So everybody's reading them. Gladstone, who was the Prime Minister at the time, was reported to have missed a a theatre date because he couldn't put down the latest instalment of Collins' The Woman in White. And I think the enormous popularity was a key component in that kind of critical hysteria that emerged, quite soon it became a divide between popular and more highbrow fiction. So anything that was perceived to be popular or by a writer that, that wasn't approved of by the reviewer, it was quite quickly dubbed um, sensational.
1: So everyone was reading sensation fiction, but who was writing it? Well, first up, you've got Mary Elizabeth Braddon.
0: So Mary Elizabeth Braddon's life is almost as sensational as as the novels that she's famous for. She went on the stage in her late teens at a time when middle class, respectable girls didn't really become actresses. It was still perceived as a disreputable thing to do. She was chaperoned by her mother constantly through that period, but she wanted to write and she worked very hard to break into the London literary scene of the time. So in her early career, she published some poems in provincial newspapers and then she found a patron, John Gilby, who basically paid her a salary to write her first book. And early in the 1860s, she met... John Maxwell, who was a publisher in London. He ran numerous magazines, most of them quite ill-fated. Maxwell was notoriously bad with money. Lots of his ventures ended up going quite disastrously. And at some point in the early 1860s, Braddon embarked on a romantic relationship with Maxwell, as well as working for him, contributing short stories to one of his periodicals, The Welcome Guest. Maxwell couldn't marry Braddon because he already had a wife who was insane. And I don't know if your listeners might not be aware of this, but there were three main reasons um, in the Victorian period why you couldn't divorce your wife. So one of the reasons was if your spouse was in prison for life, you couldn't divorce them. One was if The adultery had been condoned, so this was the case with um, George Eliot, Marianne Evans, and her partner, George Henry Lewis. Lewis was unable to divorce his wife because he had condoned her adultery with his friend Hunt and put his name on the birth certificate of illegitimate children, etc. And the third reason was you couldn't divorce your wife if she had been declared insane. Um, lots of popular sources will tell you that Maxwell's first wife, Marianne, was in an insane asylum. There's no evidence for that at all. It's much more likely from the evidence we do have that she was being looked after at home in Ireland by family. But the, the situation was that he couldn't get a divorce.
1: The asylum issue is important here too because lots of sensation fiction plots, including Lady Audley's Secret, use asylums, whether as a punishment for wayward women too wealthy to go to prison or by forcing women into asylums to gain their wealth. There were, at the time, no shortage of reasons a woman might be admitted to an asylum, including a number of flexibly defined maladies like hysteria, nervousness or overaction of the mind.
0: So Braddon took the quite courageous decision um, to live with Maxwell outside of marriage and quite quickly they began to have children they, they had six children in all so right from the beginning of her career she's sort of positioned as this disgraceful woman she's outside of, of social respectability and she has her own secrets just like the heroines of her novels
1: and Lady Audley as you might guess from the title is one of those heroines with a secret The story follows Lucy Graham, a governess who catches the eye of Sir Michael Audley and soon marries him. She's young and beautiful, with golden hair and blue eyes, and she's loved and adored by everybody. But when Sir Michael's nephew, Robert, visits Audley Court, he is both captivated by and suspicious of his new aunt. Robert is a well-off, unexcitable barrister with no dependents and very few cares in the world. But when his friend disappears in mysterious circumstances, he becomes determined to solve the case and is increasingly sure that his new aunt is hiding something. So there's murder and blackmail, forgery and bigamy, arson and burglary. And with Robert's investigations, it all reads much like a detective novel at a time when that genre was just coming together in its own right. In fact, Wilkie Collins's other most famous novel, The Moonstone, is one of the foundational texts in the detective genre, which you can find out about in episode 44. So at the centre of this puzzle is the fascinating character of Lady Audley.
0: Lady Audley, as the, the female protagonist, was described by one critic as noxious, um, a female Mephistopheles and an aberration so a lot of the the critical kind of backlash against the novel was around this issue of of its heroine and her transgressive acts
1: contemporary readers were both repulsed and drawn to her
0: i think they were fascinated because she seemed such an anomaly her appearance was the ideal of the angel in the house the perfect victorian woman she embodied those ideals of beauty of the period yet she concealed this monstrous inner self that was willing to commit murder without giving any spoilers away to to act ruthlessly in protection of her own her own interests and i think that was the sensationalism of the plot. Interestingly, it wasn't a particularly new phenomenon. It was only a kind of transgression in terms of classed forms of fiction, because a friend of mine, Andrew King, who's who's written about this, shows that there were numerous golden haired, angelic, um, murderous women in Penny Bloods, in lower class fiction, that they, they kind of populate the, the pages of the London Journal, which was a a periodical that was aimed much more at working class readers. But in middle class fiction, it hadn't really happened before. And I think it, it was kind of the timing as well, because this is a, a decade when you've got the, the emergence for the first time of kind of really organized feminist campaigning, um, moving towards things like the first Married Women's Property Act at the end of the decade, and and just you know, the Contagious Diseases Act. So there was a lot of kind of public debate around women's roles, women's nature, what were women really like, what should they be doing, what were they capable of. Um, so Lady Audley was kind of thrown, you know, very visibly and in, in a high profile way because of the popularity into this debate. The place of women
1: in British society at this time was a fiercely debated topic. And just in case you need reminding, the legal position of women was, by modern standards, pretty grim. So it was obviously still a long way off until women would get the vote. That wouldn't come until 1918, and only for women over 30 and with various property qualifications. At the time sensation fiction was at its height, a woman effectively surrendered her legal existence to her husband once she got married, so her rights at this point were similar to a child's. She couldn't sue or be sued, as she didn't exist legally. Her personal property all passed to her husband on marriage, who could do with it as he pleased, and any freehold land she owned also passed to her husband, although he needed her consent to sell it, and the machinations around these sort of things when huge inheritances were involved formed the plots of plenty of fiction from this time. Dr. Beller mentioned the Married Women's Property Act of 1870, and various acts in the latter half of the century allowed women to keep some of their earnings or property after they married or retain them after a divorce, but these were still quite limited. The Divorce Act of 1857 changed the way divorces could be granted, essentially allowing the better-off middle classes access to divorce. Before then, it was a very complicated and hugely expensive affair, really only open to the very wealthy. Divorce for the less well-off, though, was still not a realistic prospect. So, legally, a woman's property, and her body, of course, belonged to her husband. Fathers also remained the sole legal guardians of any children. Oh, and the age of consent at this time was 12. So all of this forms the basis around which so much sensation fiction was built. Scheming and intrigue around marriages and divorces to gain huge inheritances, forgery, blackmail and murder to obtain land, titles, wealth, men and women working against each other with and around the law, all at a time of early feminist agitation for the right to vote and equality in education and work. There was a lot going on. But then one book changed everything. Everything. No, I really didn't at all. I just thought that sounded sensational. I'm actually going to stop here for a quick break. So for all you regular listeners, you will know that this show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, the home of some fantastic podcasts, which I think you as a listener of this show will definitely like. One of those is Fireside. So every week, the host, Kevin... Actually, I don't know how he sticks to his weekly release date. It's insane. He never misses an episode. But anyway, he takes a story from folklore or mythology. He gives it a fresh retelling and then he discusses the story itself and the craft and culture and history of storytelling. Really great stuff and definitely one for listeners of this show. Fireside is the Irish storytelling podcast. Every week you'll hear tales of mythic Irish gods, Arthurian knights or Norse vikings. There is folklore from Ireland and around the world, and even historical legends like Brian Boru and Gráinne Whether from poetry or prose, lyric or legend, if there is a good story at the heart of it, you'll find it here. I'm Kevin C. Olihan. I'm your host and Fireside Bard. With over 150 episodes and rising, there has never been a better time to join us by the fireside. <music> So Fireside and, of course, Words to That Effect, are part of Headstuff Plus, which is the membership platform that allows you to support the network and your favourite shows, such as this one. There were a few new members in last week, so thank you very much if you were one of those. And if you're not a member and you'd like to join go to headstuffpodcasts.com where you can find out more. As a member, you'll get bonus episodes, discounts and merch and live shows and lots of other things for all the shows on the network, no matter which one you support. Headstuffpodcasts.com. Thanks. I want to turn now to The Woman in White, which, like Lady Audley's Secret, is just a great story. It's full of twists and turns. It's got a central mystery and a detective-like character, but it's also quite original in how it's presented. So the story is told from multiple first-person perspectives. So as a reader, you're kind of trying to piece together what's happened with a narrative that keeps jumping from viewpoint to viewpoint. Now, Collins wasn't the first person to do this, but it definitely anticipates other popular works, like maybe Bram Stoker's Dracula, which does this too, and a lot of the forms of later modernist fiction. It's a really effective way to present a mystery. And The Woman in White is also, in large part, because of its serialised publication, just such a gripping novel.
0: So The Woman in White began um, serial publication, lots of sensation novels, if not all, were initially serialised. and And that's very relevant when you're thinking about the kind of the fast-paced element of them, the the frequent cliffhangers, you know, designed to kind of propel um, reader interest and bring them back for each instalment. And Colin certainly provided this with The Woman in White. So The Woman in White, unlike Lady Audley's Secret, doesn't feature a transgressive female at the heart of it, but it does involve um, a number of women who are quite interesting in different ways. So you have Marion Halcombe, who is the half-sister of Laura Fairley. And Marion was presented as a very masculine type of woman. There's there's a, a description that even suggests that she has what borders on a mustache. She's, you know, given by by Collins the, the kind of the supple and beautiful form of, of a woman, but the kind of personality and strength of a man. And this is very much in contrast to her half-sister Laura Fairley, who is quite insipid, really. Um, she, again, embodies that the angel in the house quality. Unlike Lady Audley, she is exactly what she seems and she is very much a victim of the machinations that surround her. The other great
1: character in the novel is Count Fosco. He's this rotund, eccentric, mouse-loving Italian count who is at first glance vivacious and extravagant, but just below the surface is deeply manipulative and intimidating, terrifying to those who come to know him. Even if they're not as central as Walter and Laura, it's Count Fosco and Marian Halcombe who really make the novel. So I've mentioned gothic and detective stories, penny bloods and other types of fiction in this period... So where does sensation fiction fit into all of this?
0: So in terms of earlier forms of popular fiction, um, the sensation novel tended to cannibalise many of these to almost become a melting pot of ingredients that had proved to appeal to, to large readerships. So, for example, the Gothic the Silver Fork novel of the 1820s and 30s, the Newgate novel of the 1840s. Silver Fork novels were stories which presented for the largely middle-class
1: reader the glamorous lives of aristocratic high society. Newgate novels, on the other hand, were named after a London prison and were lurid and thrilling tales of real or fictional criminals.
0: And these sort of elements of, of all these popular forms were taken and and kind of put within this very kind of contemporary realist setting. Lots of early critics recognised the Gothic roots of the Sensation novel. Um, Henry James famously commented that Sensation was interested in those most mysterious of mysteries, the mysteries that are at our own doors. So it was a kind of domesticated Gothic, a Gothic that was kind of transplanted from exotic far-flung locations into kind of everyday London or suburbia. It doesn't really go away. I think it just transmutes. It's very much an early forerunner of the detective novel that that becomes much more fully formed in the 1880s and the 1890s. There are strong detective elements in most sensation novels. Braddon herself very much kind of hones that detective element and, and many of her 1880s novels are you know, typical detective narratives. It also, I think, transmutes, if we're thinking about contemporary forms, into soap opera. I mean, the whole kind of, you know, family saga, secrets, betrayal, intrigue, is kind of typical of of contemporary popular soap operas.
1: Yeah, this is something I hadn't really thought about, but there's definite parallels there. Those cliffhanger endings, the sensational plot lines, the family secrets... And they're much closer successors to sensation fiction today, too. There's plenty of Victorian-inspired literature around, whether that's historical novels or in the form of something like steampunk. Go listen to episode 30 for more on that. There's neo-Victorian fiction, but even more specifically, there's neo-sensation fiction.
0: Sarah Waters, Tipping the Velvet, Affinity, these are very much... You know, twentieth-century sensation novels, and Waters is self-consciously doing that. She did a PhD in Victorian um, literature. She's she's written an introduction to a, a modern edition of a Braddon novel. You know, Waters knows the sensation novel, and she's very self-consciously utilizing those tropes in her own fiction. But I mean, too many to mention. There's there there are novels that rewrite the Woman in White. Lots of lots of engagements with the Woman in White. There's James Harwood's The Asylum that, that kind of utilises that substitution in an asylum kind of motif. So I think sensation is very much still with us in, in a variety of popular forms. And it, it, essentially, these were novels of crime. And crime fiction, of course, is, is still one of the most popular forms for readers. And, and that kind of the puzzle element, the, the sensational kind of criminal element is is very much something that I don't think has ever gone away.
1: I'm actually currently reading Sarah Waters' Fingersmith, prompted by researching all of this. And it's so good. It's so clearly written by someone who loves and deeply understands the history and the fiction of the time. At a more general level, too, there are lots of parallels between serialised sensation fiction and TV culture
0: today. So when The Woman in White was first published, it was... So popular, it became a a phenomenon beyond just print. It, It spawned a whole kind of marketing industry in the way that we're kind of used to Today, with kind of you know merchandise for, for kind of popular novels, you know, if it had if been able to at the time, there would have been a film. Um, but but there were there were women in white perfumes, there were dances, you know, there were women in white quadrilles and waltzes, and I think that's an element that is is very s- sort of um, typical of, of today, that kind of tie-in sort of factor, but also um, the kind of I suppose. What we would today call event TV, you know, when there's a big kind of new drama serial that gets very much hyped and everybody's talking about it because everybody's watching it. And if it's, you know, if you can't kind of binge the box set, then you've got to kind of wait for each episode. That was a similar thing. Everybody was talking about the latest sensation novel. Everybody was desperately waiting for the next installment. So I think elements like that are familiar today.
1: Just like sensation fiction was written, published and marketed to draw people in and leave them waiting for the next installment, so too is contemporary television shaped by whether it'll be watched in one bingeable whole, broken up over shorter series or released week by week. And while the latest massive TV hit may not always result in its own quadrille or waltz, it'll pretty much get every other spin-off and piece of merchandise possible. The height of sensation fiction's fame may only really have lasted a decade or two, a century and a half ago, but its legacy and influence are clearly recognisable today. And more importantly, if you haven't already, there are some shocking, terrifying, sensational Victorian (gasps) classics out there just waiting to be read. That's it for another episode of Words to That Effect. Thank you very much for listening. A huge thanks this week to Dr Anne-Marie Beller, who has written extensively on this subject. And I've put a link to her research and her bio on the website if you want to find out more. That website is at WTTEpodcast.com where you'll also find full transcripts, a list of all the works mentioned, images, back episodes, and lots, lots more. And there are also links to the show's Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. So head on over to WTTEpodcast.com. The podcast artwork is by Matt Mahon, production assistance by Marissa Brown, and this episode was recorded at the Podcast Studios Dublin and is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. If you'd like to find out more, if you'd like to support this show, which I would be hugely grateful for, you can head on over to headstuffpodcasts.com and find out everything there. See you next time.
0: This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the podcast studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com.